and welcome to another of Political Yeti's Politics Podcasts. I'm James Miller, and I am delighted to be joined this week by two podcast regulars. Uh, first, it is Roger Mullen, SMP MP for Kokodi and Cowden Beath, and uh, like resident fashion expert on this podcast. I'm thrilled to be here once again yes. with the distinguished James Miller. We've just discovered you're a big fan and you listen every week, right? Uh, oh, absolutely. Wouldn't uh, miss it. And also with us is uh, Tony Grew, um, angry parliamentary expert. Is that okay. fair to say? I'll, I'll take that. Angry yeah. parliamentary expert. He can get quite angry sometimes. Um, <laughs> You won't like me when I'm angry. It's hit and miss whether he's going to be any, one of his angry I'm either ones very or mellow or I'll just explode at some point. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll see how we go. Uh, and we will start with this. PMQs. Um, PMQs. Roger, do you like this week's PMQs? On the whole, I thought it was pretty boring. Yeah? Uh, it confirmed to me that uh, the leader of the opposition should not attempt to make a joke ever. Because I thought you were going to say the leader of the opposition should not attend. But well, that, that also <laughs> might help. He is the... He has a... I have to say, he's got a remarkable ability to make the Prime Minister seem remarkably fluent and just so much better than him. Uh, and I just find it astonishing. I mean, I know that the, uh, sometimes it's been done in the past, and we've discussed this. We thought, well, was that his worst? No, rarely do we say he's made a really good job of it. Mm-hmm. I would. I just thought it was tedious. His, his joke was that Theresa May is not so much the Iron Lady, more the Irony Lady. I don't even understand what that. I don't even understand what that means. Uh, it wasn't really a joke. In what just, way is she being ironic? Well, irony sounds like iron. That's yeah, no, I know that. It. I know that's that. basically that. it, right? <laughs> I think I think he thought it was related to his earlier point about uh, she said she wants to return power to Parliament, but made the statement outside uh, Parliament. Yeah. Right. Isn't so I ironic? think, but I mean, it was. That's pathetic. pathetic. Okay, uh, let's let's be honest about this. Um, the, where the Prime Minister chose to make that speech is of zero interest to people outside Westminster. Yeah. So it's not it's not a great line to go on. But can I just say one thing? I agree with Roger. I didn't think it was a particularly interesting performance. I find it, it's it's shocking, considering the material he's been given to deal with as, <laughs> as opposition leader, that he can't make something out of it. But I wanted to make a slightly broader point, if I may, which is that Labour's problems as an opposition go much deeper than leader. Um, you know, are, do they even have a whipping operation anymore within that party? I mean, I look at I look at the way in which they act on those benches, and I, I just think, can I give you an example? Yeah. On Monday, Sajid Javid, uh, the community secretary, uh, came to the House to answer questions, and he's being asked about social care. In England, social care is an absolute crisis. Mm-hmm. I should not have been able to hear him speak from the anger and the you know coordinated attack that he should have been getting from the Labour benches. Silence. They're yeah. sitting there like a bunch of depressed teenagers. Uh, they're not. They're not hitting their targets properly. They're not. They don't appear to have a, a planned line of attack. Yeah. Uh, and, and again, there physically aren't enough of them in the chamber. Well, they're behaving like individuals, aren't they, rather than a party? I mean, well, that's that was the point I was going to make. Is what I think we've seen in the last few months is the rise of maverick backbenchers in the mm-hmm. Labour Party. So, that, I mean, I think this relates to Tony's point about the lack of effective management of mm-hmm. the group. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, when the, the Corbyn was first elected, you had one or two mavericks like John Mann, Yes, but there's a lot more now willing to stand up, 
and they all seem to want to make a point of, you know, trying to crack some sort of comment or joke about, you know, I don't know what my party's policy is, but it should be mm. this. Uh, and so it, it's, it's not a healthy thing for the group. So a a Labour MP that was elected in 2015 said to me the other day, um, how about the SNP said, oh, they all, you know, they all sort of, they all turn up to each other's debates and things like that. And I said, yes, because they're a party and that's how you're supposed to act. But you've never experienced. Mm. Let me put this to you yeah. another way. The Labour Party used to be the absolute masters of this game of yeah. the parliamentary game. They used to be the unassailable what? kings of it. There were, there were, there were points in the, around the year 2000 where people in the Tory party were concerned that their party would no longer exist yes. in five years. Mm. And now I look at the absolute state that they have got themselves in. I don't know who's to blame. Tony Blair is to blame. A culture of control and spin may be to blame. Gordon Brown may be to blame. You know, five years of Ed Miliband's um, Mm. Quite, quite frankly, when I look back at it, preposterous uh, positioning that he could possibly be a potential prime minister. Uh, you know, but so Labour's problem is yes, that Corbyn isn't isn't a prime ministerial, and that the voters clearly don't think that. But they themselves, as an opposition party, are nowhere near ready for government. Yeah, that is they don't true. seem to show lo loyalty to one another. I mean, the one thing that uh, I would say this, of course, but I do think in our group. There's a lot of sense of we want to support one another. It's not about supporting the leadership as such. It's about supporting one another. And so... And by the yes. way, that's not, that's not an SNP unique thing. You saw mm. it very similar with the Liberal Democrats. when oh. they're in the same position. You're the smaller party. Yeah. There's 50 or 60 of you. It's 50 or 60 of you against everyone else. Yes. That's a natural way to be. Yeah. But part of it surely is that the SNP have a goal, right? You've all got something in common, which yeah. is you want independence. That's right. The Labour Party don't have a goal. I mean, obviously, they, they want to be in power, but that just doesn't seem likely, and it's certainly not likely while Corbyn and his cronies are I would running agree the show. So there's nothing to bind them together. Now, a Labour Party of all parties really ought to know how to work together because truly that's what the Labour Party is about, right? But um, but that's the difference, right, is that there's, there's nothing to, to bind them like mm -hmm. there is for the SNP. Yeah, yeah, uh, but you would have thought they would have a, at least a communal commitment to uh, scrutinising the government, to attacking the government, as a minimum. They don't even seem to display <laughs> you, that. You might, but um, some of them possibly, uh, I don't know, not in it for that, are they? They're in it for power, they're in it for ego. Not all of them. I mean, most MPs no, no, are all good no, guys, no. I always say that, but with no power in, in sight. But I'm old enough the to other remember... Stuff tends but to I'm old enough, I know that you've written down in your pad that I was an angry young man, but you didn't say that. <laughs> I did. Yes, angry young man and parliamentary know-it-all. Well, we'll, we'll skip the tape back. But look, I'm old enough to remember Labour in opposition and, and, and the time in which they started to get their act together. Mm -hmm. the, the, after defeat, after defeat, they, they suddenly, or <laughs> maybe not suddenly, but, but under John Smith and then Tony Blair's leadership in yeah. opposition, they grasped the important part of opposition, which is that every single thing you do has to be about holding the government to account and getting yourself into power. That's the nature of it. And that was in a, that, and by the way, can I just say, that was people from the far left of the party yeah. into the far right of the party That's working right. together to, to try, because the only, the only goal that they had, they only had one goal, and that was government. Yeah, mm -hmm. well, I mean, that's the difference, isn't it? Is that in the 90s, you know, the Tories were falling apart and government was very within reach. I mean, you know, mm. more than within reach. It was a given, frankly, even through once we got past Maastricht. And that is why your far left Corbynistas and Diane Abbott are willing to work with your, I wouldn't say far right, but whatever you want to call them, your Tony Blairs, because mm -hmm. they had that mm -hmm. goal. And 
they wanted to do something with power where that just doesn't exist anymore. But there I think it was thing. important, actually, uh, uh, I'm putting words in terms of mouth here, but I think it was important that there was John Smith and Labour wouldn't have gone straight to Tony Blair yes. without some stability. Yeah, and yeah. I think what John Smith delivered was a lot of stability. And he obviously had a lot of respect both in the House and yeah. in the party, and that was very yes. important for them in their transition. True. And talking about binding factors, here, yeah, this is smooth, um, you said that Theresa May looked good today as well in terms of her performance. I would suggest her party were more united than they've been for a few weeks behind her. We certainly heard people like Anna Subri saying, you know, making yeah, yeah, more yeah. pleasant noises than they have towards uh, her for weeks. Absolutely. And she seemed more confident at the dispatch box. Now she's got something to argue for. She's got a case. And well, she I, think, I think there was a combination of that, but she must have been surprised at the inept way in which Corbyn began to question her. She can't be surprised by it now. She must expect Corbyn to be inept every week, surely. Everybody else does. <laughs> Prime Minister's supposed to be scared of PMQs. I mean, yeah. in his last but appearance... But she looked scared in previous well, weeks because, it's pretty because she had nothing to sort of defend because yeah. she had to yeah. come out and make the Brexit. Brexit means Brexit, which didn't mean anything. I think, that's a, I think that's a fair point. But now she has got something. She looked like a different person, yeah. I thought, this week. Yeah. I mean, that yeah. might change. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and, and the Tory unity that's been very, very publicly displayed. You know, yeah. Lots of... Um, there were several Europhile Tory MPs... Um, who stood up and uh, praised the Prime Minister for her tone and, yes. yeah, and for her clarity yeah, exactly. and for things um, like that. And, and, and so I think there's been a very concerted attempt by the Tory whips to uh, ensure that they're putting on a united front yeah. now. The devil is in the detail, and that's, that's, yeah. the, that's the problem. Uh, the Tories, uh, yeah. Tories, Tories fall apart, they always do. Um, <laughs> I'm not, I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, yeah, somehow they still win elections. That's because they're, that's because they're the, def the default party. Of government, and that's what Labour have always had to fight against. And well, I know, know, I know historically, but I don't think that's a position they necessarily. Did you expect David Cameron to win the election? No. And a, a Tory majority government? Oh, I didn't expect a Tory majority government. I did. Well, that's not true. I did predict it. I said he'd get a majority of two, but um, Tories win elections. And I that know, makes, but and that I makes don't in, think that, in English context, that makes them the people debate. I, I, I just, I'm. I just and, mean, I know what you mean about historically and, and they survived. I don't think that and the Tory party and the Tory party have survived being cleared out of Scotland. Yes, and losing a significant amount of support in Wales if some of their Welsh supporters come back. Yeah, They've overcome that hurdle yeah, and Scottish can still hold back. power at Westminster. True enough. Um, let us briefly, while we're covering PMQs, mention the SNP because we always do. Angus Robertson was awful than Corbyn. as usual, uh, <laughs> but he was not the star of the SNP this week. That I've, title I've went to Tiny. Is she the smallest MP, do you think, Kirsty Blackman? Kirsty. I don't she think is. it's appropriate to comment on things like that. She's a tiny woman. That's not She's a tiny fair. woman. Uh, Kirsty. She may well be the... Is the hardest working she, well, in terms of the student too. I mean, she reads Erskine May and tries yes. to memorise it. And, you know, she's phenomenally hardworking. And uh, I'm going to be in a... a, a a little committee with her this afternoon and she loves going on the most obscure committees mm -hmm. and yeah. learning so I think that but I mean her question clearly was the best question of the day in terms of the Prime Minister didn't know how to respond to it yeah. and, okay. it, and th that was the one question I think where she looked really discomforted I think she was actually saved in her question because the Speaker intervened 
And she was able to sit down, and I noticed that the leader of the house then whispered in her ear something, and she came and finished it off okay. But before that, I thought Kirsty had a so good Yeah, her question was about the Great Repeal Act, such as it's called, which is going to turn turn all the EU law into UK law. I'm not sure it's going to repeal a huge amount. But well, I've uh, had a letter from... one law and create a whole new law. I, but uh, the question was whether it would apply with evil. With English, evil. English, English, English laws would apply to any of it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the brilliant thing about that was that Kirsty managed to do what I think all backbench MPs must dream of, well, if they're in opposition, which is catching the Prime Minister out. Because yeah. it was quite clear that... And I was obviously sitting in the press gallery surrounded by, mm. you know, scores of journalists, all of whom were sort of laughing, going, she doesn't know the answer, she doesn't know the answer, she's got no idea what the answer is. And of course she didn't, because it just came completely out of the blue. But as you say, she got a chance okay. to actually compose herself and then said, well, actually, evil might apply to some of it, yes. which... Yeah. Um, you know, talking well, about the, the answer she wanted, but it must be the answer that suits the I'm interested in the repeal bill. Um, I did a wee bit of research to try and say, that, you know how they said they're going to incorporate everything? Yes. Mm-hmm. And I've looked at a number of EU laws, presumably all regulations, and presumably standards that are applied to make yes. the, the single market, yep. customs union work. And the best I can judge, there are 134,500 individual laws, regulations, or standards. I then wrote a letter to David Davis, and basically saying, can you confirm that it's your intention that this is all going to be incorporated into one bill? How is that going to work? His written reply to me indicated that there are some things we're not going to be able to incorporate into the Great, great Repeal Bill. Which ones? That's going to be a job in itself, isn't it? So what to leave that's out. going to be interesting to find out, you know, sort of already saying this vehicle, which they thought was going to be the single vehicle for dealing with things, mm-hmm. is not going to be able to accommodate everything. How are they going to tackle that? And one other point, which is, you know, Mr Corbyn may be complaining that Parliament's being sidelined in this process, but you wait until the Great Repeal Bill yeah. comes along, MPs are going to have a lot to do, because the entire acquis, as it's called, which is basically the body of European law, yeah. is going to be transposed, we're told, transposed into, into UK law. I'm not sure how that relates to Scottish law, but that'll be another oh, interesting will, conversation. It, it will be, it will yeah. be. Um, well, given David Davis's performance today, I'm surprised he didn't write back saying, the war. <laughs> that seems to be his answer today to most things, isn't it? Uh, what about the war? Oh, blimey. Um, let us discuss Brexit, because there was a big speech yesterday. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're a big fan of Theresa Mays, aren't you, Tony? Uh, I, did I've, you like her speech? I, I've liked Theresa, and then not liked her, and then liked her a bit more, and then liked her a bit less. Um, but I, I'm glad, to, to, referring to your previous comments, Boris Johnson... Uh, comparing comparing French people to the way in which uh, prisoners were treated under the Nazis is the sort of thing I look at. And if you ask me why I'm glad Theresa May is the Prime Minister, that's why. Because <laughs> at least yes. he's only the Foreign Secretary and not the Prime Minister saying things like that, which I find grossly insulting to our European partners, mm. people that really did suffer under the Nazis. If you were, if you were Dutch or German, or, you know, how would you feel about that? Um, I'm really concerned that there are sort of um, UKIP-esque uh, attitudes, little Britain attitudes flying around in in government and being expressed by very senior ministers. That is unhelpful. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I voted to leave the European Union, but I expected that to be done in a respectful way and in a positive way. And I'm very concerned at the tone that some senior ministers have taken because I don't think insulting our European partners or threatening our European partners or talking about how they're going to be smashed into pieces as Theresa May did yesterday if they don't do a deal with this is either helpful to a process of negotiation. Mm. Um, 
or just even credible. I mean, well, you should you have know, thought that before you voted Leave, really, shouldn't you? I should, have, I should have imagined every scenario that could possibly well, have come forward. You should have thought about who was going to be in charge, yeah. I well, I did think about who was going to be in charge, and I assumed it was going to be David Cameron, because he told us that he would remain as Prime Minister even well. if he lost, so he lied. Well, and he then said he'd stay in Parliament, and he didn't. Um, so I'm not, uh, you know, the blame for a lot of this for me is, it, when we're talking about Brexit, is with David Cameron. Well, uh, yeah, you went into a shoddy renegotiation, you came back with nothing. All of this was done to appease your right wing. A significant number of people, I suspect, decided to leave or made their minds up at that point. But anyway, he's the past, Theresa May is the present. Uh, I thought the speech, look, it's good that we've got some clarity. Yeah. Logically for me, leaving the European Union means leaving the single market and the customs union. It always did mean that, as far as I was concerned, because anything, if you stay in the yes. single market, then you haven't really left the European yep. Union because you're still under the control of the standards that we talked about, uh, the courts and all that sort of stuff. And we can't stay in the customs union because one of the key attractive reasons for me wanting to leave the European Union is the way the world itself has transformed since the 1970s. Britain was in the, you know, uh, Britain's uh, econo economy and its position in the world were battered in the early 1970s. The, the whole industry was out of kilter. So that, that to me was the attractive part of it. And I just want them to crack on with their yeah, project. Let, let me pick you up on one thing. I'm surprised there's not been more comment about this. And that is, we know that uh, a lot of the leavers, no doubt like yourself, are saying we've got ridiculous standards that constrain business. So we want to we can do something now to reduce that. Mm -hmm. We want to reduce the regulation, a lot of which is, you know, not properly enforced or enforced differently in different countries. They want to do that. But when you enter negotiations, if you want the best deal and you say to the EU, but we're not going to stick with the standards that you yeah. impose and we're not going to have the same regulatory framework, why on earth would they allow you free access? And so that I think, yeah. I think, in terms of what the leavers want to do, uh, in that side of the equation, is going to have a cost, in, uh, and perfectly reasonable that it has a cost yeah. during the negotiations. I, I think we're going to end up paying money. Yeah, I think that's I one think of the things that the UK has that can use. But, but can I also say that if this government truly does believe in trade and in international free trade, then what we should be pushing for is not EU standards. But international standards, that's, that's what we should be aiming for. We should be aiming for international standards on the production of goods and services so that they can freely be sold literally across the world in markets across the world. But I agree with you. You know, If we're going to trade with the single market, we need to keep to their regulations. Mm -hmm. If we're going to trade with the United States, we need to keep with their regulations. If we're going to trade with Japan, we need to keep with their regulations. Mm -hmm. It's a slightly more complicated issue in terms of a world trade market. But the idea that we're going to, the idea that we're going to have access to a market when we don't follow its trade rules is nonsense. It's, it, well, so. it is nonsense. And, the, and we've still got the problem. I mean, uh, uh, I've asked of a number of departments written questions, well, how many people have you now recruited to handle negotiations? And of course, you don't get an answer. Mm. Uh, uh, but I think there is a genuine concern that uh, the UK is at the moment in a very weak position in terms of negotiations, not just with the EU, but once Brexit mm. comes along and mm. they're then able to negotiate yep. more widely, how they're going to be able to do that. I mean. Hey, whatever we might think the Trump presidency is going to bring, one thing it will bring is a whole army of people with experience of international trade negotiations. True. Right? We don't have that. Uh, yeah, but the war, Roger, what if you get is the war and the empire? <laughs> we can just bowl up to uh, India and go, yeah, we used to own you. Do you want to buy some cars? And they'll go, oh, yeah, 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 that's fine. Same with Australia and New Zealand, right? 
that's basically Liam Fox's approach, isn't it? Yes, I had and forgotten that uh, Liam Fox that existed. It is, yeah, Liam Fox is completely <laughs> mad. But that's the approach, isn't it? It's basically, oh, the empire, oh, the war, everyone will trade with us. Mm-hmm. And everyone wants to bow down to us. You know, yeah, they'll, they'll eventually get into everything we want. Something to look forward to. Um, yeah. I, do think, I do think that if the UK plays its cards right, it could end up with a decent deal with the European Union and trade deals with some other countries and more trade deals to come. But I'm under no illusions that this is going to be an easy process and I'm quite concerned that the tone of, again, some of the people, senior people in the government don't yeah. seem to have grasped both the complexity of that but also the fact that you that you have to treat people with... with Respect if you want to have a proper yeah. negotiation with them. I, I, I thought, uh, I know quite a lot of people disagree with me, including uh, some of my colleagues, but I, I thought the worst thing to say was there'll be no deal. We yeah. prefer a no deal to that deal. I thought that is not a way to go into negotiations. You may think that, yeah. but the last thing you do is say to the other side, to start out in a position that is threatening. Yeah. Right? Because then they think, how do we respond initially to the threat, mm-hmm. not how do we respond to the offer? Mm-hmm. And so I thought negotiation-wise, when I've thought about this overnight, I wondered, I just wonder out loud with you two guys get your view, whether the intention was actually to signal what's going to happen with this vote at the end of the parliament. It, is the vote going to be you accept the deal... Or we are out the EU yeah, just any case with nothing. In other yeah. words, some people are thinking that the offer of a vote is, oh, well, maybe we'll remain within the EU. I think, I yeah. think what it will be is that <laughs> the Tories are building up to a vote of, you accept what's negotiated. Or nothing. Or we're out yeah. with absolutely nothing. Well, look, there's a, couple of, there's a couple of complicated issues here that I think are getting conflated. The first one is that once we trigger Article 50, there's a two-year deadline, yeah. and that, that, that negotiation is about our exit from the European Union. Yeah, yeah. Now, I'm, now, I'm pretty yeah. sure that that will be completed mm-hmm. in that timescale. Mm-hmm. But honestly, if I was the United Kingdom, I would be going to our European partners and saying, we're not going to be able to negotiate a trade deal in two years. So, yeah, actually, we should separate these processes completely, and they are actually separate yeah. processes. There's two things. There's, there's our exit negotiations mm-hmm. and our future trade negotiations. Yeah. I suspect what will happen in 2019 is that MPs and the peers will be presented with the exit yes. uh, treaty. But, but the, 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 the trade stuff will have... Will right. have will and have and I think, up. actually, in Theresa May's speech yesterday, there were sections that were indicating what I would say is some kind of transitional arrangements. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not all going to be done within two years. So I would, yeah, yeah. I would roughly agree with what Tony said. But, uh, but in terms of the parliamentary vote and this, this um, concern yeah. that you seem to have that, that Parliament will, will reject some deal and that then, then the country will be left with no deal with the European Union, I think it's important to separate out those two, mm. those two deals. I think it's highly unlikely that we will not only have negotiated, but will have passed a yeah. new trade deal through 37 parliaments and what, regional yeah, parliaments yeah. that need all of all of whom need to approve and ratify this treaty before it can be brought into force. I don't think that's likely to happen in two years, and I think we should probably... And, I, and again, I think, Roger, I think you're completely right. I think somewhere in the Department for Exiting in the European Union and in Downing Street, light bulbs have appeared above heads, and people have thought, hold on, we're almost certainly going to need some sort of transition. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, let's talk about... Uh, 
Let's skip immigration because we haven't got all day. But that that concern, <laughs> well, that concerns me as part of the speech is that nobody seemed to mm. say we're leaving the single market because it's the best thing for the economy. It seems to be we're leaving the single market because that's the only way to get control over immigration, which I think is uh, a bad thing. Um, it's also but, a lie. Mm-hmm. I well, mean, I mean, this is this is this is the again. I talk about light bulbs sl- slowly appearing over people's heads. There's a woman called Andrea Leadsom who, uh, during the summer of madness, was under the impression she was prime ministerial material. Yes. who's our perma smile environment secretary. Yes. Comple- uh, you know, a, a one of the people that led the Leave campaign. I think it's recently just occurred to her that our uh, that our farming industry needs hundreds of thousands of seasonal workers mm-hmm. to yeah. pick vegetables. She's suddenly suddenly become alive to the fact that that's actually a major, major Absolutely. ask for the agricultural sector. So I, as someone who voted leave, I, I resent this idea that is that is propagated both in government and in the media, that, that for all of the leave voters this has to do with immigration, I fully recognise the value that both low-skilled and high-skilled immigrants bring to this country. And I, again, I, the government, whilst talking tough on it, yeah. are still going to have to introduce some sort of uh, mechanism by which low-skilled workers can come to the United Kingdom and work. That is an absolute, you know, uh, imperative for the rural economy. So there, there's a lot of talk, uh, I guess what I'm trying to say, there's a lot of talk mm-hmm. that you'll find quietly rode back on when it actually comes to it. All right. Um, like I said, well, I'd, yeah, but I'd again, love to take you up on that. Otherwise, it's going to screw up whole parts of the economy. Yeah. Um, and really screw them up. This isn't a game. How do you know which, you know, it comes down to how do you know which are the good immigrants and which are the bad immigrants? This is the thing, this idea that somehow, you know, some shouldn't be here and somehow high-skilled students should be allowed in, but people are actually going to pick strawberries shouldn't. Well, what if the fellow who picks strawberries is, you know, really clever and ends up settling and, you know, anyway, it's a, it's a, it's it's horrible is what it is, frankly. They're bonkers. If they're going to do what they say they're going to do and have some very high detailed assessment of every individual to decide we can let yeah. them have the thought on the army of bureaucrats and well, the cost and the time yeah. and, and the fact the, the home office are comically bad at this anyway well, yeah exactly. Never mind i mean the whole I, I just moral issue i just don't it, think like. it's going to happen yes i think we'll end up with a much more lax system than than many of the U- more ukip minded voters mm-hmm. may have thought they were going to get i think it'll end up being a lot laxer than that um, and also, yes, the whole, so and also by the way, the whole system, you know, it's difficult to stop people moving between countries as well. This yes. is an issue. But anyway, we'll, we'll, do a, we'll do a special exactly. podcast yeah, on that. I mean, you know, if you've got all afternoon, we can sit and talk about that. But let's, <laughs> let's move on to, because Roger's here, he's an SNP man. The other big point is the Indy Ref, or where this leaves Scotland. And mainly, it leaves Nicola Sturgeon looking like a ripe wally, doesn't it? No. She said, India Ref's more likely after the vote. It's getting increasingly likely. It's highly likely. India Ref's not likely at all, is it, Roger? No, I think it is likely. What? How? You're going to lose it? I think, well, I don't think we are. But no, I well, think, well, when are you going to hold it, then? Well, uh, unfortunately, I have not been elected to as prominent a position as a party as I think... <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. Would allow me to determine the time. My preference would be that it's held uh, once we're well into negotiations and have some sort of sense of what's happening and you want to target it for something around six months before the end of the Article 50 process so that when you win it, you're still within the EU 
and it becomes much easier for an independent Scotland to negotiate its place because it can do it under the Article 50, whereas if you wait until after, you've got to do it under Article 49, which is a much Fine, more... But that, okay, so that's process. late, late 2018, so, say. Yeah, something but like that. The problem you have, and, and that all makes perfect sense... And of, course, and of course, this is recognising we don't know what all the uncertainties and turmoil sure. that's going to happen over the next year. And this all makes you know? perfect sense, but the problem you have, and Nicola Sturgeon has, is that... She, I contend, expected a shift in the polls post-Brexit, and it hasn't happened. And that's your problem, is that you cannot have a referendum and risk losing it, because then independence is off the table for a generation. Uh, yeah, the other way to look at it is, when we went into the last referendum, when it was triggered, yeah. uh, the Yes campaign was lying at 25%. Yeah. And the nature of the campaign, yeah. despite as I'm willing to admit, a number of flaws in the campaign, managed to generate a huge amount and a huge swing towards. Sure. And that has been largely retained. I think what you're getting just now is a rise of people who are becoming more... Uh, this is my impression, talking to groups, talking to business groups, they're like people becoming a lot less certain at the moment. In other words, yeah. I don't think there's been big switches from one side to the other. But I think there are people who are growing to th think, I'm reflecting on what I thought two years ago. Sure. Right? Oh, yeah. And uh, uh, it's a matter then whether you think it's persuadable through a fairly lengthy campaign. And consequently, it's a gamble. You know that. To go into a campaign uh, any, gambling any, on any, winning 10%, 15% extra. Any, any is election is always a gamble to some extent. Yes. But you know? that's a bigger gamble. You, if the polls were saying 60-40 for yes at the moment, the SNP would be in a much stronger position with this. It's not just the SNP, remember, there are other groups who support right, this. It's but it's yeah, yeah, no, I accept what you say, but I mean, uh, what we'll have to do is, uh, uh, a lot of imponderables here, let's wait and see what happens. I think over the next six or nine months, we'll get a better sense of where communities are viewing the process of about to leave the EU. Uh, I confess, Previously, having dreaded IndyRef2, having done IndyRef1, uh, I'm quite looking forward to it now because I think it might be quite high quality because there's something actually at stake. I mean, the first one, when you look back at it, yeah. SNP had nothing to lose because, you know, you weren't expecting to have to call an IndyRef. It happened to win the election in 2007, blah, blah, blah. It was always the case that no was ahead. You know, if you lost well and that's what happened, in some ways that felt like a win. Mm -hmm. This time it's going to be proper neck and neck and the arguments are going to have to be really good on both sides, which and, they weren't last time. Let's and say. there is an awful lot of background work being done yeah. to look at preparing the arguments for the next NDRF. I'm sure. In the way in which there wasn't to the same extent for the first one. Um, let's just fairly briefly on this, but you're the expert on this in, in a way, Tony, because you're Irish. But Ireland, <laughs> Ireland is going to be... All right. Ireland is going to be key to this, I think. Isn't it? Because if there's yeah. a if there's a, a soft if a soft border is achieved between Northern Ireland and the Republic, that makes it much easier for the SNP and Scottish nationalists to say, well, we can have a soft border with England if England leaves the EU and we stay in. I agree with Roger that a lot of stuff's in flux and it's not going to become clear for a while how those arrangements will will be made. And I understand what you're what you're aiming at, which is the idea of, of Scotland having different arrangements from the rest of the UK in yeah. a way that Northern Ireland may well be given. Well, just because part of it is right, at the moment, the SNP have to say, 
right? England, if you like, is leaving the EU. If we go independent, if if there's a hard Brexit, you're going to have a hard border. Now, that's a big problem for Scotland if there's a hard border with England, just in terms of people crossing yeah, no, the border in terms of trade. Yeah. But if big a, problem for England. Yes. Well, yes, but a bigger problem for Scotland. <laughs> but a good point, Roger. But, yeah, it's bigger, but it's a bigger problem <laughs> I mean, for Scotland. Why, why would they want it? All right, but it's a bigger problem for Scotland why than it is for England. But if you get a soft border in Ireland, then yeah. the Nats can go into an independent referendum saying, well, we'll get a soft border, same as there is in Ireland. Uh, and no, that would seem There are considerably not more complications involved than that. Uh, so Scotland, what, becomes an independent country and it should celebrate the fact it's got a soft border with Britain, but it's not a member of the EU? No, it would be in the EU. No, that's not going to happen. Within the EU. But that's not going to happen. Spain, like, Spain has made very clear that that's not going to happen. Ah, well. Ah, uh, well, yes. That's well, well, have they good. though? Uh, yeah, they watch have. out for your House Magazine interview with a prominent SNP MEP mm. next, next week on this very point. Okay, um, but <laughs> in terms of Ireland, look, there are concerns, but the big difference between when the Anglo-Irish Agreement was signed in 1985 and now mm-hmm. is the relationship between the governments has completely transformed. I don't think Britain has True. closer relationships, honestly, a, a, yeah. a, a more frank and close relationship oh, yeah. than we do with the government of Ireland. And that's a massive change from what, yeah. our, what Irish British Irish relations but, were like. But let me ask you, Tony, sure. an, uh, uh, another question. There's been a lot of talk about the border simply in relationship to the travel area for individuals. Mm. But if we're out, UK's out and out with the customs union, what's the flow of goods going to be like? What's the trading going to be like between Northern Ireland and the Republic? I imagine it'll probably just be mostly illegal like it is now. <laughs> yeah. um, no, but That's it is, look, it is an issue. Know, but my, so concern, my concern, Roger, yeah. is it's that the European Union... The my concern problem. is that the European Union, in its attempt to be hardline, will damage... Uh, um, trade or movement of people or any of those things in Ireland and that's something that the British and Irish governments have to stand resolutely against and yeah. say we are the co-guarantors of life in Northern Ireland mm-hmm. and we through international treaties which supersede the EU we will you know we will work together on those issues but it, you know it is a concern there are fixes an easy fix for example would be to uh, bring in border controls in the mainland and not on the island of Ireland mm-hmm. so there are lots of different ways in which you, in other words passport controls yeah. in, in, in England yeah. If to get to the island of Ireland, yeah. you need to go through passport control. Mm-hmm. But you know, there's lots of different there's lots of different iterations. I have confidence that the closest of the relationship between the British yeah. and Irish, com- completely away from the EU, yeah. I think the closest of the relationship between the British and Irish governments will ensure that the, that a deal is done. I, uh, that will that will be for the best uh, best for people in the whole island of Ireland. I'm inclined to agree on that one. Uh, okay, let, listen. <laughs> Trouble with Brexit, you can talk about it all afternoon. But um, I've just got places to be. I know, and Roger's come on to talk about SLPs. No, I just came on to talk to you because uh, I think okay. you're such a charming lad. Let's <laughs> talk about SLPs. Okay, how are you? Uh, these are Scottish <laughs> Limited Partnerships. You've been uh, saying for a long time these are a bad thing. They're used by crooks to. Yep basically launder money. Yes. And initially um, when they tried to make the UK government uh, do something about it, way back in the finance bill of last year, it was sort of brushed aside, this isn't an issue. So we've been working away. Uh, I've had quite a number of uh, meetings directly with ministers providing information. I managed to get an excellent journalist, David Leask, down to give evidence to the bill committee, the criminal mm-hmm. finances bill, who I have to say gave the best oral evidence of anybody brought before the, the bill. And he I is. think I think the collegiate effort of us having things like David Leeson the Herald, the people who've been working behind the scenes like a Richard Smith and a, a, a Gary Deans, and as well as myself and a few others here, we have managed to get the UK government 
to launch a review that we've been asking for for mm -hmm. the last nine months. And I think that is something where we can take a little bit of satisfaction from, but it's only a review. The point I've been making is <laughs> lots of governments have reviews that don't lead to anything. Mm -hmm. What we've got to make sure now is that we move forward from this review and fix this because the amount of international criminality is huge. What do you think? that a review is a code for doing something. They'll look at the evidence and it's so overwhelming that something will have to happen. I think, you know, from the conversations I've had, I think they now recognise that this is a more serious problem than they previously recognised and that I think they will do something. What we've got to do is make sure that, I mean, for example, I'm going to put in a detailed submission to the consultation sure. and suggest specific ways in which they can fix this problem. And this is evidence of what bank benches can do and why it's good to have your SNP MPs at Westminster because they can achieve stuff, right? Well, we hope, I mean, some of us have achieved things. I think that's been a little victory there. Ailey's had a victory with a, our private member's bill. Mm -hmm. And uh, a number of, uh, Patricia Gibson uh, uh, has had victories as well in terms of uh, phone calls, cold calling, things, yeah. cold calling and the like. So I think these things are important. I mean, if I go back to the way in which the conversation started, first of all, uh, in supporting one another, it of course helps the psychology of the group, the dynamic of the group. If you know you're in a fairly hard environment where there's not a lot of sympathy, but nonetheless mm -hmm. you're beginning to have some victories and you're doing some things that are purposeful, mm -hmm. that in itself helps you to come together and bind together. So I think these things have got a wider importance in terms of the way in which politics organises itself. Westminster's all right, really, isn't it? No, it's right. a... Oh, oh, oh! Don't, you can't swear on this podcast, right? You can't, don't kill the first person to swear on the podcast. Have you bleeped um, all that out? Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, that's an idea. Uh, um, so, yeah, anyway, it, it's all good news, on, but obviously the campaign continues, basically. Yeah, yeah. It's got a limited partnership. Um, let us finish with my new feature with its new jingle, which sounds like this. I love your questions. I love your questions. I love your questions. Um, it's amazing. Isn't it? It's brutal. It's the best one you've heard, isn't it? <laughs> um, can you name the MP? Come on, Tony, you're an expert. You've is, heard it. Is it Jacob Rees-Mogg? It's not Jacob Rees-Mogg. You lose. And then on to next week. It's going to be a rollover. I'm going to have to come up with a prize, aren't I, for the person that gets it. Well, um, surely it should be that difficult to work out. It's obviously something you've done a podcast with in the last three months well, or so. that's true. Yeah, well, okay. there you go. Well, as it's you, not Jacob. You've failed. As, as you rarely have women on, it shouldn't be that difficult <gasps> to work out. That's not true. Another all-male panel. I know. I know. I have not, I, I'm well aware of that. It's an all-male panel. I don't like all-male panels, but... Um, there we go. I'll have an all female panel in a couple of weeks to make up for it. Um, lots of female SMP MPs around. Mm -hmm. I know. I have women on all the time, right? I'll do the. I'll crunch the figures and show you that I have lots of ladies. Anyway, for anyone that's listening that wants to try and work out who the voice is, that should that should make it a little bit easier. Well, yeah. All right. I can't believe anybody's going to actually go to that much effort. Um, <laughs> right. So the point of the the feature is it's a big chain of questions. Last week I asked Stephen Gethins started the chain by asking him what he would do if a man told him that he'd seen a lamb eaten by a badger. That was question one. Mm -hmm. He went a bit more uh, a bit more uh, simple with his question. Did badgers eat lamb? No, exactly. That was the point of the question. Okay. Uh, as you know, because you've listened to that episode. Yeah. Um, his question for this week's panel was a bit more simple. 
Uh, we'll see what we can do with it. What's your favourite European country? Roger. What's my favourite European country? Hmm. Well, you're quite, I mean, you're it, quite a well-travelled man, aren't you? Exactly. Yeah, excluding Scotland. Obviously. Well, you could say that if you wanted. <laughs> I mean, it'd be up to the listeners but to decide what they think of that answer. That would be a bit boring. Wait till I think. What's my oh. favourite European Tony, country? you've got a favourite European country? Uh, yeah, the UK. Oh. Um, I'm, very fond, I'm, question, I'm very fond of Holland. Holland? Yeah. Why is that? I was going to say that. Well, because Holland. Dutch people are really nice. Yeah, they speak they're, English as well. But that's they're good. also just they're, they're like immensely chilled. So yeah. that's what I really like about them. Uh, and yeah. Amsterdam's there, just such a beautiful well, city. I don't think about going to Amsterdam. It's just such uh, a beautiful, yeah, beautiful city. There are, there are, it would be easier to say which cities rather than on, uh, countries. Well, I really like Vienna, for example. Yes, good choice. I think it means nothing to me. Oh, oh, that's a Thank better joke much. than Jeremy Corbyn <laughs> by a distance. Uh, good choice. Yes, Vienna. Well, I did suggest to Stephen that his question should be about cities after I didn't mm-hmm. actually know where Antwerp is. Mm-hmm. But And let's face it, nobody it's goes to... I know that now. Uh, nobody actually goes to anywhere in Austria other than right. Vienna, right? So Vienna basically is Austria. There's mm-hmm. a very good series on the TV about it, actually, mm-hmm. about Vienna, mm-hmm. how it was made in the Habsburgs and all that. Yeah, yeah, nice. Doesn't the PM go for walking holidays in that part of the world? She does. I've been to Salzburg actually to be fair which is also in Austria but um, Mm. anyway good choice right Mm. Roger what's your question for my next podcast guest oh goodness me come on I don't know who it's going to be yet you don't know who it's going to be yet no I don't Uh, I don't even know if they'll excluding James Miller yeah and your good self thank you who is your favourite journalist and why oh (laughs) (laughs) that is a good one to stir things up yeah (laughs) Uh, that's going to ruin somebody's reputation, isn't it? I mean, the answer's obviously going to be David Torrance, if it's uh, whoever it is. <laughs> um, right, very briefly, because you are on here, Roger, uh, and you are our resident um, fashion expert, let's just discuss the fact you're wearing very snazzy shoes and odd socks. Can you explain why you're wearing odd socks? Uh, well, um, I, I like to be uh, sartorially always elegant. You do? Somewhat different. Yes. My, my shoes are extraordinarily cheap are they? Uh, online, Ooh, uh, so that's the first snazzy. thing. So cheapness was a key to the snazziness of my okay. shoes. But also my middle daughter, Rosalind, mm. uh, knows name. how much I love uh, colour, my attire. Yeah. And so what she found was you can actually buy sets of odd socks. So I get a set of these beautiful odd socks, which now, since this is a podcast, I'm yeah, I'll have to take a picture. Now, I have to take a picture. Now, these are quite remarkable. Um, very nice, so, Tony. Yes. Are you as appalled as I am by the concept of selling sets of odd socks? It's not a set, is it? It's just it's an outrage. I think. I think you're a grumpy man. And you can make <laughs> your own odd socks. Just buy a set of socks that match and then mix them up. Do you know, you should you should oh, be celebrating so the brilliance of capitalism. I, <laughs> that I think it says exactly everything that's wrong with capitalism: selling people things that they just don't need and don't want. Exactly no, but I do want them. And that's well, why I'm wearing them. you think them. you do, but you, well, you've, you've got, presumably you had socks before, you could have mixed them up and then you would have had odd socks. But they would, have, they would have been spectacularly odd exactly. as these ones are. Uh, exactly. I've got, I've, got, I've got several pairs of uh, slightly different black socks that yes. you could technically call odd. But no, no, I'm with capitalism on this one. Well, I wouldn't... That doesn't surprise me. Let's face it, being a capitalist, uh, <laughs> I assume they're, they're fair trade and, and ethical, these socks. Of course they are. Good. As always. Um, okay, listen, on that bombshell... Uh, um, 
I will end this podcast there and uh, say thank you to Roger and thank you to Tony again. If you want to get in touch to discuss Odd Socks, Brexit, favourite journalists... And you never discussed Vienna my is. dog. We didn't discuss your dog. Uh, do you really want to discuss your dog, uh, We can't. I have to go. He's going to go. <laughs> okay. Uh, Okay. Well, tell you what, come back no. on in a couple of weeks, we'll do your dog. Right, okay. All right? Uh, right. There's, a, there's a good deal. You can ask a question to yourself. Come on next week and you can answer your own question. There you go. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't want to answer my question. <laughs> if you want to get in touch, uh, I am politicalyeti at gmail.com or at politicalyeti on Twitter. Uh, please do uh, also use those contact details if you want to give me money to sponsor this podcast. If you are from the Odd Sock Company, I would welcome your money, despite everything I just said. Um, and tune in next week for a another of Political Yeti's Politics Podcast. Thank you.